Okay, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter. We uh, return to this passage. We're going to be referencing what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 2 as well. Um, So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, beginning again at the 11th verse. We're just going to read a couple of verses this morning. If you would join me in standing as we are reading. Now therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace and peace in this day. And we pray, Lord, that our hands and our hearts would be made full with your glory. God, help us to love you and to honor you. Help us to walk in accordance to your truth. And teach us, God, in the midst of all things, that Christ is to be honored. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not know. It is not broadcasting, apparently. So, my apologies. Um, Lester, I think it's here. I'm not getting anything out of this. Can you come up and make sure things are turned on and in and nothing got... I turned it on when I came in this morning, but... All right, try and get back on track here. The coming of Christ brought that tremendous bag of blessing that we have been considering. The great change in our access to God and the transformation of the very system that we have been given is the heart of this gift. For Christ has made a way for us to be received into the presence of God. The many related blessings which come with this transformation have been our study this Christmas season. And today, we finish this sidebar out of Hebrews with one final gift, the gift of wisdom. Wisdom is such a great need for us, and it is so easily counterfeited that we need to see the reality of it so that we are not deceived. Wisdom has come. God in Christ has given us wisdom for the ages. So I want to start with thinking with you about what wisdom is and is not. And the things that the world takes as wisdom are not really wise. It's not a collection of facts. It's not a higher education degree. It's not being medically certified to tell the world how it should behave when bad things happen. It's not the inherent property of the moneyed. The wealthy do not necessarily have wisdom just because they have a lot of stuff. And yet we allow them to behave as if they have the power and the wisdom to rule the world. The World Economic Forum, for instance, or BlackRock and Vanguard that push compliance with ESG ratings and seek to backseat steer society into their own image. All of these things the world looks at and says, oh, they're wise people because they have money. They're wise people because they have this stuff. But that's not wisdom. Fame and popularity are also not signs of wisdom, and yet how often does Congress interview and listen to testimony from actors and entertainers 
regarding important social issues, giving credence to their fame as if it imparts wisdom. Wisdom is not what the masses want, and it is not what the masses believe. For wisdom changes all the time if that's what it is, according to the pressure of the loudest voices. But wisdom doesn't ever change. Wisdom is defined by a source outside of us. God himself tells us what wisdom is. Proverbs 2, starting at verse 6, says this, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the ways of his saints. This is what wisdom is. It's something that God himself defines. Wisdom is defined by the nature and the attributes and the character of God. We don't get to decide what's wise. We don't get to say, this is what I think, and therefore, if you agree with me, you are oh so wise. And yet, how often do we act this way? How often do we define our terms of wisdom according to our personal preferences and we decide that those who agree with us are wise and those who disagree with us are wrong or wicked or evil or whatever and if our standard is God's truth, then we have the right to say, according to the word of God, this is wise and this is not. This is good and this is not. This is true and this is not. But if our standards are our own preferences, then we should just be quiet. If our standards are the science, then recognize the truth that the science changes so quickly they can't even publish what the latest things are before it's out of date. Keep in mind that the science 100 years ago said that the best way to treat mental illness was to cut huge chunks out of people's brains. That was the science. I'm not sure that I trust the science. What I trust is the unchangeable word of God that never alters and never is wrong. That's worth trusting. And that's the wisdom that we live by, and it's mandated by what God has said in his word. It's mandated by God as the shape that the world should be in, the very thing that should be desired above all else. Proverbs 4.7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all of your getting, get understanding. So God's word to us is this. Look, if you want to search out the world and acquire something worth having, don't search for money. Don't search for fame. Don't search for power. Don't search for popularity. Search for wisdom. Because wisdom is the main thing that you need to have because wisdom, in truth, will always lead you to God. Wisdom is displayed and revealed in the word of God. Proverbs chapter 4 starting at verse 20, says this, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Wisdom is given to us by God for our good. And it is in perfect alignment with the will and the way of God. Proverbs chapter 8, starting at verse 8, says this, All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to those who understand and right to those who find knowledge. You see, God never gives us anything in his word 
that is not ultimately for our good. He never gives us anything in our word that is not ultimately going to call us unto him and to transform us into the likeness of Christ. That's the purpose for all of it. And for everything that God tells us, if we are wise, we will be seeking him so that our lives will be aligned with his will and his purpose. If we are not wise... We will be seeking to satisfy our own lusts, our own passions, our own desires. And at the end of the day and at the end of our lives, we will look back over a landscape of waste and say to ourselves, oh, what have I done? See, wisdom is freely available to all who will call upon God. And therein lies the rub. For the natural man hates everything that God loves and loves everything that God hates. So if we are left to ourselves, we will not only do what is foolish, and we will do what is never wise, we will seek folly, and in the end, we will desire our own destruction. Because folly, the lack of wisdom, is always connected to death. If you pursue folly, you will perish for your folly. If you pursue that which is foolish, there will be consequences in your life for that pursuit. If you continue to neglect and ignore what God says is true and what God says is right, there will ultimately be things that happen which are not pleasant. Now, not only is death and folly intimately connected as a target, death and folly are intimately connected in means of source. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is the man who is spiritually dead. And so the wisdom of God is to him foolish. He, he cannot understand them. He cannot lay hold of them. He cannot put his head around them. And any of us who would think on this can give testimony to the fact that before God opened our eyes, the things that God said were true seemed like nonsense to us. It seemed as if it made no sense. The words themselves seemed to lack meaning. And so when you stand and you speak to unbelievers, understand that their obstinate refusal to hear God is a willing sin, but it's also an inability. It's also something in them that they just can't understand. So keep in mind, you should never seek to carry the gospel outside of prayerful consideration. When you should always be praying, God, give me grace to carry the gospel with power. Open their eyes, open their heart, call them to life. Because the only one that's going to be able to open the eyes of the blind to call the dead to life is God. Now, in his mercy and by his wisdom, he has ordained that the thing which will call the dead to life is the power of the gospel. So as you do what you are called to do, Asking God's anointing upon it, the gospel does its work, and God uses that to call the dead to life. He uses that to actually fulfill what is being asked. But those who are dead not only cannot understand, they will not understand. There is an intentionality to it. There is a determined purpose to seek their own way. They will intentionally misconstrue Every word that God has said. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 6. <coughs> Pardon me. 
Jeremiah chapter 6, and we're going to read through this little section here, starting at verse 14. Speaking about those who are speaking for God, but speaking falsely, Jeremiah says this, They have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, and at this time I punish them. They shall be cast down. Now, how does this apply to us twisting and, and misconstruing what God has said? Look, there is no shortage of people who will take a verse out of Scripture, for instance, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and they will make it the be-all, end-all of everything that God has said, so much so that they will argue rabidly against anyone who says that God has boundaries and limits upon what he will allow. The, the entire conversation about gender and sexuality in this land especially when the church often gets involved on the wrong side of the question, comes down to this idea. God loves everybody, and therefore God wants them to be happy, and therefore God should be completely satisfied with who they want to love and how they want to go about doing it. The problem with all of that is that God's word says exactly the opposite. And so if we're going to base our opinion upon God's word, then we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to our hearers to speak the whole counsel of God's word, to take the time to understand what God has actually said so that we do not twist it, so that we do not warp it according to our own imagination, and so that the truth that is being spoken is actually what God has said. In order to do that, you must be spiritually alive. Because remember, the natural man cannot discern the things of God. He can't understand them. Part of the problem is many who stand in places like I am standing right now themselves do not know the living God. They themselves are spiritually dead. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, if a blind man leads a blind man, does it go well? No, they both will fall into a pit. And that's the truth of the matter. When dead men speak, the only thing they can speak is dead things. So for us as Christians, we have to recognize that there is an obligation, there is a duty for us to speak truth into the void and into the midst of the chaos that's being woven in this nation. Because there are many who name the name of Christ, who do not know him, who do not respect his word, who do not honor his truth, who will speak lie upon lie upon lie because they are spiritually dead and they have no knowledge of the truth. Now, how does this apply to us? It applies to us because oftentimes we are tempted to say, well, that Christian said this, and I don't want to argue with them and make a ruckus. Look, understand this. If what they're saying is false according to Scripture, you have a duty to speak truth. You have an obligation to correct where things are being misstated. Do it with grace. Do it with kindness. Do it with Christ's love upon your words and your actions. But do it. Because the natural man will take a small little thing of what they have heard about God and misconstrue it to be something else completely. Claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Let's read on, verse 16. 
Thus says the Lord, stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. That's good counsel. But we said, they said, we will not walk in it. (laughs) You get good counsel, they go, nope, I'm not interested in doing that. That sounds like too much work. It sounds too limiting. It sounds like God doesn't want me to have any fun. I'm not going to do that. I also said, I will set a watchman over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. So God has put the church in the position of being the watchman over the world, of being the one who sounds the alarm, of saying, this is the word of God. This is the truth of God. The way that you are living, the things that you are doing, the things that you are espousing, the things that you are saying, we will not be silenced as to the truth. Now, Understand this, if the world continues unchanged in the direction in which it is heading, it will become much harder and much more dangerous for us to stand and speak truth. But we still must do what God requires us to do. We still must speak the truth. We still must obey God's word. We still must stand and say what is right and say what is truth because God himself requires it of us. So you have to understand that wisdom is obedience to God and wisdom says, I will do what God says regardless of what anybody around me thinks I ought to do. This is our calling. And it means that sometimes you're going to be at odds with nearly everybody in your world. It means that sometimes your own family will be set against you. It means that sometimes your friends will stop loving you. It means that sometimes you may lose a job. You may lose two jobs. You may be sued. You may be imprisoned. Eventually, they will have the power to kill us and to do it legally. It's happening all over the world right now. In the last hundred years, more Christians have been martyred than in the previous 2,000 put together. Now, admittedly, a great many of those are taking place in the Muslim world. But if things go on the way they're going, it's going to be us very soon. Beloved, we have an obligation to prepare ourselves to speak the truth regardless. And to do otherwise is folly. Wisdom demands that we obey what God has said. Wisdom demands that we speak the truth and that we own what God has said as the truth that it is. Because God himself is the one who establishes it. Look, if this is all just my opinion, then please feel free to leave. Or or run me out. That would be a better option. If all I'm giving you is my opinion, then I need to be quiet. But if I'm speaking the word of God, then you have to deal with the word of God as what it is. And there is a compelling reality that says to us, God will hold us accountable for the truth that we know and understand. He will hold us accountable for the things that he has commanded us to do, regardless of whether or not they're easy. Because here's the truth. Unless God intervenes in the life of your friends and neighbors and family who hate the truth of God, who hate his law, who hate his wisdom, they will die in their ignorance and they will be damned for all of eternity. 
Those are the stakes, and there's no easy way to explain that. There's no soft way that I can address that issue. But these are the stakes, unless God intervenes. Now, is God capable of intervening without our cooperation? Absolutely he is. He can do whatever he wants. But the truth of the matter is that Scripture tells us that the plan that God has put in place and the normal order of what he does is to use the means that he has established. And the means that he has established is the faithful proclamation of the gospel by his people. We have to do what he tells us to do. Reading on in Jeremiah, verse 21, it says this, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay a stumbling block before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them, and the neighbor and his friend shall perish. So where people refuse to recognize and obey the word of God and the wisdom of God, there are consequences that are dire. So why does this matter to God so much? Why is it so important to him that we adhere to his wisdom? Well, at least in part, it is because his wisdom gives us a very specific content about God himself. It is the knowledge of God in absolute truth. God has crafted wisdom for us so that we might know his perfection. Wisdom is designed to lead us to God. What is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So if you do not have a base of wisdom, how are you going to know who to love and how to love him? You won't. You're just going to make it up, which is what the world looks like. Somebody quipped a long time ago that God created man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. Creating God in our own image. Making God to be what we want Him to be. If we do not know the wisdom of God, we will invent a God who looks just like us. And we see that happening all the time. We see the fullness of man's intention and man's creative ability doing everything in his power to bring God down from his throne and to make him be nothing more than an exalted man, just like us. And this truth is everywhere. Beloved, it's not truth. And it's not wise. Because wisdom tells us who God is. And that's why God takes it so seriously. So when we encounter wisdom and we embrace wisdom, understand that wisdom not only has a content, it has a reward inherent in the acceptance of it. That reward is peace. There's chaos in the world all around us. Everywhere you look, there's something getting broken, something being destroyed. Good things that have lasted for centuries are being uprooted and cast into the fire all around us. And yet God tells us that he will grant to us peace. Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Perfect peace is ours when we focus our mind and attention and our heart on God and upon his wisdom. Jesus himself said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled. 
neither. Let it be afraid. Now, why can we have peace when we embrace God's wisdom? Well, partly because in God's wisdom, righteousness is revealed. What is it that upsets our peace? The fact that we know God is angry with us. That, that's, the, that's the heart and soul of every argument that the world levels against us. I'm not a bad person. I just love who I love. I'm not a bad person. I just identify how I identify. I'm not a bad person. I just like doing this. I'm not a bad person. I'm just trying to be happy. Right? I just want to be happy. That doesn't make me a bad person. How many times have you heard something like that come from somebody in the world? I, I, I hear it all the time. Why are they so prolific in their protestations of their innocence? It is because they know in their soul that God is a righteous God and that he is angry with them, angry with them every day for everything that they love. And they hate him for it. And they do everything in their power to convince themselves and anyone who will listen that there is nothing wrong with them. You say to me, God says he'll give me peace. And I say to you, I don't have any peace. What's the problem? Is it with God or is it with me? It's with me. Right? Understand the truth that we're dealing with. The truth that we're dealing with is a deep need that cannot be satisfied anywhere else. And it begins with the righteousness of God being revealed and being attributed in such a way that it can be shared and imparted to us. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. I think it's been at least a week since we've talked about this, so we should do it again. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not also teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the, in the name of God, it is blasphemed. I'm reading from chapter 2. <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't look right. But it's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Let's look at chapter 3, though. That'll fit more with my notes. <laughs> But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So to the one who preaches while he does not do, what is needed? So I'll grab chapter 2 like I intended it. <laughs> what is needed? It's God's righteousness being imputed to him. It is forgiveness. It is mercy. 
It is the truth that none of us will ever get this right and that all of us have need of a Savior. It is the truth that everything that we do is an offense to a holy God and the only way that we will ever have peace is if God himself justifies us in such a way that he can remain just himself in the doing of it. And the only way that could ever happen is that he would pay the debt that was accredited to our account. Look, I I can say to you, you don't have to pay your mortgage. Don't worry about it. Just, just, Just don't sweat it. Don't pay your mortgage. Don't pay your bills. It's all okay. Somebody will come along and take care of it. They will. They'll come along. They'll lock you out of your house. They'll take your stuff. Because I don't have the power to tell you. I don't have the right to tell you. And if I tell you that, I'm not being righteous in telling you because I am also committing thievery from those who are owed that money. But you see, God has the right to say to us, I will pay the debt that you owe to me and I will satisfy the obligation that your sins have placed upon you. And I will do that with my own blood and I will do that with my own son. And in doing that, God justifies and himself remains completely just. He's not just taking our sin and sweeping it under the rug. He paid for it. And he paid for it himself. And it is righteous that he would do so. And in that righteousness, he satisfies his perfect justice. So wisdom tells us that forgiveness must be righteous, but it also tells us that forgiveness must be just. Amen? Because inherently we know that just telling somebody, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter, doesn't make it not matter. And if God just took our sins and went, oh, don't worry about it, I didn't really mean it when I said don't murder, well, I don't trust that God. How do I know he's not going to wake up tomorrow and go, I'm going to destroy you for what you did. You already flip-flopped on me once. You told me this mattered. You told me not to do it. I did it. And then you told me it doesn't matter. That God can't be trusted. But God is just in his forgiveness. He is just in forgiving our sins because he paid the debt. He never just said it doesn't matter. How in the world does he do it? He does it because wisdom tells us that God's righteousness is just and it is given to us through his perfect grace. What is grace? It is the unmerited favor of God. It is God giving to you that which you do not deserve. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, specifically, Paul is speaking about his infirmity, the thorn in his flesh that we don't know exactly what it is. But it has application to the question of our justification. Because here's the way this plays out. If only really nice and good people were eligible to be saved, does it look like grace? No. It looks like some sort of a merit system. It looks like some sort of a system by which you go, okay, I'm going to take the really good people, which honestly condemns most of us, There may be two or three people in this room. You all sort it out. I'm not going to get in the midst of that. 
But what's the truth of it? The truth of it is that God says, I don't play favorites. I don't choose the best and the brightest because you're all filthy. I choose who I want to choose based upon my own desire. I make you my own. It is God's mercy, His grace that is extended unto us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. May the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Are you suffering? Is there sorrow in your life? Is there pain? Lean into the God of that pain. Lean into the God who says, this moment is ordained for your good. And trust Him to do what is right. Lean into Him. And know that no matter what's coming, God is still who He says He is. Because God is wise and God is good. And God is faithful to himself and faithful to his word. With grace, we also understand that God has perfect mercy. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not through yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is this mercy? It is God saving us in spite of us. It is God giving to us good things. It is God withholding from us the bad things that we deserve. It is the fullness of God's pleasure to redeem a people. And it is God's delight to love those that he has redeemed. It is his delight to love us with a perfect love. John chapter 15. Jesus speaking about this perfect love to his disciples says this. Starting at verse 8 of John chapter 15. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your joy may remain, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Now keep in mind, Jesus is speaking these words on the eve of his crucifixion. He's telling them this is what love looks like. And come morning, he's going to show them what that love looks like. He will go to the cross to lay down his life for the sake of their sins and the sake of my sins and the sake of your sins. He will go to the cross to pay the price that our rebellion demanded. 
And he will do it because he in his sovereign grace has chosen to love us. That perfect love has an impact in how the body functions as a body. God calls us to love one another. It's not by accident that he told them that love is sacrificial. Not only in light of what he was about to do, but in what he was calling us to do as well. To live together as the body of Christ, loving each other so importantly and so profoundly that everything we do is a mind towards the other. It is not a selfish perspective. It's not a, this makes me happy, this makes me comfortable, this makes me well. It is the idea that I will do what I am called to do because it is good for you that I do it. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us we are to never forsake the assembling together of the brethren. But we are with a conscious mind towards one another to stir up love and good works in one another. You can't do that when you're absent. You can't do that when you're not of us and among us. That requires this kind of love which says, you know what, I love you more than I love anything else. And I'm going to demonstrate that. This is the reality of what God gives us, and it is completely contrary to what the world says love looks like. In the mind of the world, love is very selfish. In the mind of the world, love says, I love you because of what you do for me. I love you because of how you make me feel. I love you because you give me this. I love you because I, I get all like giddy and happy when I'm around you. I love you because I'm a selfish idiot. But real love says, I love you because of what I can give to you. I love you because of how I can pour myself into you. I love you because I have been given a love for you by God which will lay down my life on your account. Real love is always giving. The object of real love is always the loved and never the lover. Ultimately, God gives us a perfect love for one another and he gives to us his perfect truth. And he is the one who not only gives us that truth, but he shapes it and defines it. And through that truth, wisdom is given. Now I want to take all of this sort of backdrop and I want to apply it to the story of the Magi. Because they demonstrate for us this idea of wisdom and how it is being given and it is not something that is natural to the world around. Okay? So, first of all, we, we read a passage earlier, but, but I just want to remind you that the guys who came, however many there were, we, we give credit to three wise men because there were three gifts mentioned, but probably there were a lot more of them that came. But maybe there were only three of the, of the main Participants. Maybe all of the rest of the people who came were their attendants and their hired army or whatever it might be. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that I guarantee you that the guys who came were not the only ones who saw the star. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the fact that this star appeared when Christ was born and it appeared so brightly that these magi, these magicians 
from the eastern country. We don't know what eastern country. Many believe it was Babylon or Persia because of the Jews' exile there because they put together the pieces that the star indicated the king of the Jews. So there had been some teaching from Israel that had been translated into the courts where the Magi had the writings. It's a fair theory. It doesn't really matter. But they were not the only ones who watched the skies. The pagans always looked to the skies for signs and imports. But they were the only ones who came. Why do you think that was? Well, clearly it's because God had given them wisdom. Others all over the world saw the star and saw the signs, but they either did not understand what they were seeing or did not believe what they were being told. There were those who saw and believed. And it is a testimony to the fact that God gives wisdom where he chooses. And God gives wisdom to whom he chooses without our consent and without our help. There is absolutely zero indication in Scripture that these magi who came were anything but pagan, eastern-minded people who desired to understand this strange anomaly that they had seen and wanted to make sure that they hedged all of their bets by giving worship to this God of the Hebrews just in case he was really as powerful as their old story said he was. Were they converted men? I doubt it. And yet God called them to come. And God called them to come to do what he told them to do. And to come and to bring honor to his son, give honor to his son. And he gave them understanding according to his purpose. And most importantly for the context of this conversation, with that understanding, he gave them a willing heart to do what he told them to do. Look, how many of you have ever known people in your life that are so smart, they're stupid. They know everything there is to know, but you ask them to put one and one together in a practical way, and they're going to fall off the face of the earth. A large part of that is a willingness to obey the wisdom that we know. Not completely. There is an element of common sense, which is far less common than it used to be. But, but the reality is, is that many times... The people who know the best answers are not so good at doing them. Their own lives are a wreck. Their own lives are a ruin. Their own obedience to God's commands is is insane. But they know the truth, and they'll tell you very happily what it is that you should be doing. So God gave these men some form of wisdom. He gave them some form of understanding, but he also gave them a willing heart to do what he told them to do, to come and to see this king who was being given. Now, also in God's giving of wisdom, he uses means as he pleases, but he is not constrained by them. Okay? What were the men following? They were following a star that appeared at the coming of the birth of Christ. The star, which the ancient text foretold, gave an idea that there would be a star rising out of Judah. Did that mean a literal star? Well, some who read it obviously didn't think so, but when the star appeared, they went, oh, maybe. 
God gave wisdom, and he used the means of this natural phenomenon. We don't know what caused the star. We don't know exactly what it was. I can remember watching videos that gave some sort of astronomical account about a conjunction of planets and different sorts of things that all meant this strange stuff. You know what I think it was? I think God made a really bright light appear in the heavens for a while because it moved and led them. And it led them not only towards Israel, but the scripture tells us it went ahead of them and led them to the house where Jesus was with his parents. I've never known a constellation to be that precise. Just saying. I think God made something supernatural. I think God made something special. I think Jesus deserved something special. But you see, God gave them the means, not only the willingness to obey, but he also provided the money for the trip. This would have been an expensive undertaking. The gifts that they presented to Jesus were a fortune. It was literally a king's ransom. And so they more than likely did not come three old guys on camels. More than likely, they had an entire entourage of armed men and soldiers, and if they had tanks available in the day, somebody was driving one. They, they were ready for what might happen. That was not an inexpensive undertaking, is my point. Where did the money come from? Don't know. Does it matter? No. Because God provided the means for the obedience that he required. He took what was necessary and gave it where it was needed. The knowledge that they needed to have to put together the disparate pieces are also a form of means. If we go with the theory that it was the Persians, the Babylonians is where these men came from, then at least part of the preparation for the birth of Christ is rooted in the seeds of the Babylonian captivity and exile. Right? We look at the captivity and we say it was God's punishment for Israel's disobedience. And it was. It was God rooting out of them the idolatry that had plagued them since Mount Sinai. And it was. But when Israel was carried away into captivity, what else was carried away? Them and their writings and their stories and the truth of God's testimony. And when they went back to Israel... What stayed? The knowledge that had been there. So at least part of what God was doing in carrying Israel captive into Babylon was preparing the way for the kings to come to the birth of Christ. Just chew on that for a minute. How deep does our God plan? It's phenomenal. It's beyond the, the ability of a human to understand. But what he did was provided the knowledge that was necessary for them to have the ability to obey the command of wisdom. He provided that for them and unto them so that they could actually do what he told them to do. And in the courts of the king, wherever that came from, the knowledge was there. And when they got to the courts of Herod, what was there? the knowledge they needed to complete the journey. Would the star have guided them all the way to Jerusalem or all the way to Bethlehem? Yes, because it went before them. 
But it's nice sometimes to have a direction. And God was gracious to use means and provide a prophecy which led them into the place where Christ was. God uses means. He also uses supernatural means because the star went before them. But the direction that took them to Jesus and allowed the encounter of worship and then took them home by way of a different route, were there means involved in that? Not really. The Bible just says being warned of God. So God injected into this very means-driven obedience a very clear commandment which they then obeyed. Amen? Amen? It's a remarkable thing to consider how carefully God has given these things and He is displaying the wisdom in them that He wants us to do. They showed that they had some wisdom. They sought after Christ and they continued seeking after Christ. There's a change in the language Okay, When we find the message being given to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, it talks about a babe or an infant. And the Greek word there is very specific for a newborn child. Did you notice how Matthew described it? A young child. And the Greek word there is very specific for a toddler-aged child, probably about 18 months. Now, Herod was no fool. And what the scripture tells us is that when the wise men left another way and he realized he had been deceived, that he sent out an order to execute all of the males born in Bethlehem under two years of age. So why would he go two years? Because he's looking for a window. He didn't know quite how long they had been gone. He didn't know quite exactly what everything was. He gave himself some cushion. But all of the evidence points to the fact that when the wise men arrived, it had been about a year and a half's journey for them to come to see Christ. And it was a year and a half's journey that began on the night that Christ was born because Herod wanted to know exactly when what? When the star appeared. And in wanting to know when the star appeared, he was seeking to know when Christ was born. Very clearly in their mind, those two things went together. As a rule, when you come to my house and you see a nativity set in my house, if there are wise men present, you should look closely because there will also be other things present that also were not there. It's my own little poke. We, we put things in the nativity that have nothing to do with Christmas and have nothing to do with the birth of Jesus as a protest to the fact that you cannot buy a nativity set without wise men being in it because they don't belong there. They showed up later. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem and in specifically a stable, a cave probably. But what did Matthew say they found Jesus in? A house. Right? They didn't come to the manger. Joseph and Mary had established themselves in Bethlehem. By all practical intentions and by all practical purposes, they probably figured, you know, moving here was a real pain. We're just going to hang out. I'm a carpenter. I can work wherever I am. Why do we talk about Jesus from Nazareth? Well, because following what we just read, Herod tries to kill all the babies, and Jesus and his parents are told by, by God to flee to Egypt 
They went to Egypt until Herod was dead, and then when they came back, they went to Nazareth because that's where Joseph was originally from, and they didn't want anything to connect them to the baby that they had sought to kill in Bethlehem. See, it all fits when you read it. It all fits when you think about it. But the part I really want you to draw your attention to is the fact that they continued faithfully to pursue Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Have there been times in your life when God has told you to do something, told you to be something, told you to invest yourself in something, and you've begun well, and a little bit in, you've gone, oh, this is just way too hard. Is that wisdom, or is that folly? You tell me. I know in my life it's always been folly when I have not obeyed. Because you see, when God tells us to do something, He intends us to continue doing it. He intends us to do it until we can't. Or until He tells us to do something different. The wise men, when they came, they knew what they were called to do And they came specifically in obedience, and they stuck to it. When they got to the courts of Herod, they realized their own limitations, and they asked an honest question. Where is he? I think they went to Herod's palace, because where would you expect a king to be born? In a palace. (laughs) I don't know how much they knew about Herod's insanity, but... But I think they came here with honest hearts and they went, we're we're looking for the baby. He was born. He was born about a year and a half ago. We've come to worship him. So when you come to the end of your own ability, there's no shame in asking for help. When you come to the end of what you can do on your own and what you can do according to what you've done, there's no shame in saying, okay, I need a little bit more here. But what do we tend to do? I come to the end of what I can do I'm done. I quit. I'm out. It's not wisdom. I know in my life, more often than not, it's been cowardice. You see, they came, they obeyed, they trusted the God that they had not worshipped before. And I know this much. From what we see in the scripture, the encounter changed them. The encounter made them different. Wisdom alters us because seeing Christ led them to worship. And ultimately, I want to end on this note. Wisdom worships. We sang the song, We Three Kings, this morning, right? It's a good song. There's good, solid theology in it. It lays out for us how most theologians understand the gifts. Gold, a gift for a king. But how do you worship with your gold? Let me ask you the question. You worship by giving to God everything you are and everything you have. Your resources, your time, your interests, your talents, your abilities. What God has given to you, He has given to you as a tool for you to worship Him. Now that's a really broad statement and it's a really wide open sort of application. Because it might be that the way that God is calling you to worship Him with what He has given you is to give it to somebody and to do it with an honest heart and to, in the giving of it, give them also the gospel. 
Maybe he's given it to you to help the body. Maybe he's given it to you to provide well for your family and to establish yourself in such a position that people will come to you and you can speak to them. I don't know. It's a very broad thing. But what it means is that in your mind and in your heart and in your purpose, you worship God with your gold by giving to him every single thing he has given to you. You let him manage how it's going to be. You let him manage how it's going to be used. You let him live that out with all of your possessions. Frankincense is the gift for a god. It was the incense of worship. It was commonly accepted in all of the ancient world that frankincense was reserved for worship of one deity or another. So when they brought him frankincense, they were confessing something about him. They were confessing something that they might have had some sort of aspect of it. I don't know how much they truly understood, but that gift speaks that there was some understanding. They brought him incense as a worship, confessing him as God. How does this apply to us? Well, it's really quite simple. Wisdom says you are allowed one God and only one. And you give unto him all of your worship. We are a very scattered people. We are a people of many passions and many ideas and many pursuits and many things that we tend to worship. It has been said of America that we are a very odd country in that we work at our play, we play at our worship, and we worship our play. We're allowed one God. And everything else must fall under His dominion. And everything that we are and everything that we do should be aligned with the reality that our one God is worth our whole heart. They brought frankincense as an act of worship because they understood, at least at some level, that this child that they were seeing was God made flesh. And they brought myrrh. This idea of myrrh. Of all of the gifts that were given to Jesus, probably myrrh is the one that they kept. I expect they used the gold and the frankincense to fund the trip to Egypt, to fund the return to Egypt, return from Egypt. But myrrh is a strange thing. It doesn't have a lot of monetary value, but it's something that they all needed because it was a part of the burial rites. It was the spice of the dead. My guess is that when they came to prepare Jesus' body for burial, among the spices that the women brought was the myrrh that the wise men brought to the babe. Can I prove that out of Scripture? No. But does it fit completely with how God works? Yeah, it does. What does this mean to us? Well, it means that in the end, our wisdom and our worship and our gifts and our giving means that we surrender to God the totality of our lives. There's no part of us that we're allowed to withhold, that we worship him with everything that we are until we are no more. It is a privilege to belong to the king. 
And it is a privilege to be his in such a way that it transcends even this life. Here's what's wondrous about that. You will one day come to the end of yourself. You will take your last breath and that thing that animates the shell that the world sees and says is you will depart. And when it does, the most important parts of who you are are no longer in that shell, but they are in the presence of God. Paul said, it is better to be away from the body and at home with Christ. It means that the very first thing you're going to see after the last thing that you see is the face of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I think it's spectacular that God calls us to himself in such a way that it extends past this life. He doesn't give us hope just for today. He doesn't give us hope just for tomorrow. He gives us hope for all of eternity. And this worship of God is an investment in your eternity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about our works being tested and tried by fire and how some of them will be consumed as though by fire. But those who built upon the foundation that was given with precious stones and gold and and, and silver and things that will last, and there's an analogy going on there, don't misconstrue what he's saying. Those who build on the foundation with good things will find that their work not only endures, but is blessed by God. You see, the things that we do in this life for the kingdom become the objects with which we are able to worship in eternity. We go into the presence of God not empty-handed. You say, that's kind of a leap, Pastor. Well, he also talks about the crowns that are given to the elders and them casting their crowns before the king. And the crowns represent their faithfulness. The crowns represent their work. The crowns represent the things that they did in this life. And they take everything that they have been given as reward and they throw it at the feet of God as worship. Beloved, understand this. God is so gracious as to give you opportunity and the privilege of living beyond this life to worship for eternity. And the things that you do in this life that are for the kingdom you send on ahead to be there as your articles of worship, as the things that you will lay before his feet. I, for one, do not want to stand in the presence of God and have nothing with which to worship. It doesn't seem like a wise choice to me. Instead, I want to take the advice of Scripture and I want to prepare carefully For that day, when I will see my God face to face, and I want more than anything to have something to lay before his feet. Let's pray. God, I ask that you give to us wisdom that changes us. And I pray, God, as we think about the coming of the wise men and think about what wisdom actually is in this world of chaos, where the word wisdom is tossed about with such insanity, that you would make us truly wise and teach us, God, how to live in a way that is consistent with your wisdom. Teach us, God, how to walk according to your truth and teach us, God, above all things, 
how to know what it is that you want us to do, that we might live it out faithfully. Aim us at Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.